This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back. I'm Christian Terbish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here on Sirius XM. We're talking about oncology and the future of cancer care. Uh, If you've missed the first half of the show, you can go on workoftomorrow.com to get access to this show and all all our episodes. At this point, I want to welcome our second guest for today, uh, Niels Lonberg, who is the head of oncology discovery at biology at Bristol-Myers Scribb. Welcome, Niels. Thank you. Niels, talk about your background and how you became head of oncology discovery. Well, um, I have a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology, and I then went and did uh, postdoctoral research at a uh, cancer research hospital in New York City. And in 1989, uh, a couple of people I knew were uh, advising a venture capitalist who was starting a new new company. And uh, I started working with them, and uh, I moved out to Silicon Valley. And there was a, a small group of us, initially only three scientists. And we started up a company. I became uh, the scientific director. And we developed a, a technology for drug discovery that we used uh, to create a, a number of different drugs in a bunch of different areas, cancer, autoimmune, infectious disease. And there's now 10 of these drugs that are approved by the FDA. Uh, that came from that technology. And one of the drugs that we developed uh, in partnership with Bristol-Myers Squibb um, ended up uh, becoming approved, and that uh, process led to uh, the acquisition by BMS uh, in 2009. And now I am the site head uh, here in California for uh, Drug Discovery Group and also have responsibility for oncology drug discovery outside of California. Now, in pharma, people often talk about the, the pipeline. Uh, tell us about your role in that. So, so you're feeding the preclinical pipeline, or how, how early or how far upstream are you in the development? This, this is the very beginning. Um, my group comes up with ideas for new drugs, and uh, we then partner with teams uh, all around the, the company with different skill sets. We work with chemists, with toxicologists, and... Uh, we come up with a, a new drug, and the clinical team then develops that drug early in the clinic. And if there is a promising profile for the drug, it goes into late-stage development. Walk me through that journey, and in particular, the very upfront part. You, you casually mentioned that you're the scientists who come up with the ideas. Can you be a little bit well, more explicit? What, do, what do these ideas a, look like? Yeah. Okay, it's not just me. I have a whole team. Oh, I understand, um, yeah. Yeah. So people, um, we work with uh, academic groups around the, around the, uh, the world. Uh, we work with other biotech companies. And we obviously, we read the literature. We go to conferences. We try to keep up on, you know, the, the latest science. And uh, we propose ideas. We have a, a governance process. Someone will, um, will present their idea for a new drug. And if it looks promising, if, uh, if people agree that this uh, could potentially lead to a, to a real drug that would help people, we start the drug discovery process. And there's a little bit of a bifurcation there because there's multiple modalities. And the two dominant modalities for cancer drugs are antibodies 
and small molecules. And so there's a, there's a difference in how we discover the drugs, if it's an antibody or if it's a small molecule. If it's an in, intracellular target, the antibody can't get to it. And so in that case, we're, we're really um, focusing on small molecules. Um, and uh, we screen a very large library of different chemical structures and look for things that bind to the target. And then the chemists uh, uh, generate uh, structural um, variants of that original hit, and uh, we refine the uh, the drug all all the while looking at the toxicological um, profile and the efficacy profile or the potential efficacy profile, the activity profile. For an antibody, we would immunize a mouse with a protein that is that that is the target, and then we would screen for antibodies produced by that mouse that have the desired property. And often we then further optimize that, uh, the final antibody to have better you know, characteristics with respect to formulation and manufacturability and uh, PK and, and, uh, and, and, and activity. Um, but the key thing is that the antibody is generated in a mouse that we've genetically en- uh, engineered to make human antibodies instead of mouse antibodies. And that way, when we develop a protein, an, a, an antibody, which is a protein that we're going to put into people, the people don't have their own immune response to the drug. Instead, they see it as a human antibody, and it has a long half-life uh, in, the, in the patient. Now, how much of that is brute force experimentation versus rational deduction, if you will? I mean, uh, you described the process in the early stages, I, I guess, there's a saying that uh, uh, fortune prepare, pre- uh, papers the prepared mind where there's right, kind of this, a, this a Louis Pasteur quote. A yes. Louis Pasteur was the person, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, how, how much of it, and, and pardon me to phrase the, the question this way, you, you sometimes just need damn luck as well, right? Well, um, there are um, different paths for coming up with a drug. If you have a target that's well-characterized, and you can um, understand the structure of that target using X-ray diffraction, you can sometimes come up with an initial molecule that would bind to that uh, protein in a particular way. More often, what we do is we screen a library, and we come up with molecules that bind to the particular target, and then we get a crystal structure a three-dimensional structure of that molecule bound to the target. And from that initial structure, we're able to say, well, wait, we could put, you know, we could put a, a methyl group here, a carbonyl group here, and it would have you know, a higher affinity for that, uh, for that particular target. So it's a mix of rational uh, design and um, brute force screening. How, how anti- a, go, go ahead, yeah. sorry. With antibodies... It's very difficult to design in silico an antibody that will bind to a, uh, um, a particular target. And so you're, um, you're, really, you're really forced to, to start with uh, just sc- random screening of a, of a library and look for things that bind to the target. And that's where automation comes in. And we use automation. We're heavily dependent on automation for both small molecule and antibody uh, drug discovery, because then we can cast a much wider wider net. We can um, we can do you know 
thousands, millions of assays and uh, and look at many, many different structures and pick the uh, the best structure as a lead, and then we optimize it. That was going to my next question, which is uh, really thinking about the work, the workflows, the operations. So in both of those, you mentioned the screening workflow and the, the, the rational design workflow. How have those two changed over the last 10, 15 years? I mean, so with screening, this is idea of high throughput screening, lots of automation. Um, how is it on the design side? Is, is, is there some technology that has helped you through three-dimensional visualization, through maybe artificial intelligence, help the scientists to become more productive? Yes, there's, I mean, tremendous advances in computing. Um, the, uh, the computational power that we have now uh, just obviously dwarfs what, we, what was available 20 years ago. Um, it's also possible now to get... Uh, uh, three-dimensional structures of protein molecules very rapidly. Uh, it used to be, I mean, when I was starting out in science, you know, it was somebody's uh, uh, graduate thesis coming up with a, a crystal structure, and there was a whole team involved. Now, you know, we generate uh, multiple crystal structures, you know, every, every year. We, um, uh, it's, a, it's a fairly routine tool. And uh, so it, there's just tremendous... Um, advances in computational power and also the availability of uh, uh, coherent x-ray sources. Um, uh, everything has converged into a, uh, um, uh, a very different world. Now, there's a lot of excitement around this kind of digitization, exponential growth, at least in the technology world around Moore's Law. Um, but in, when it comes to healthcare, it, it seems that the problems are also getting much harder. Is, is that a fair statement? The, the low-hanging fruits have been picked, and so <laughs> in many ways the next generation of drugs is, is not coming out faster, cheaper, better, um, because you're also fighting a much bigger enemy now with this better, better, better weapon that you have? Uh, it's true. There is there's a bit of a, a Red Queen effect. Um, uh, the easy problems get solved, and science is uh, very competitive, so we have to run faster and faster just to stay in the same place. But um, a big part of that um, uh, increasing difficulty in, um, in, in discovering and developing new drugs is the overall price of clinical trials. That has gone up tremendously um, since I started. It used to be a lot easier. Uh, to initiate a clinical a clinical trial and to complete a clinical trial, it's a it's an extremely resource uh, intensive uh, process now, and so you have to layer that on top of the fact that, of course, the easy problems always get solved fastest. Why is this needs? Why the increase in costs of clinical trials, even for clinical trials, when it comes to patient awareness, recruiting, exchanging medical records across sites? Those seem to be possibilities, again, for benefiting from digitization. So why, why did the costs go up so much? Yeah, I'm not sure that, um, I mean, again, I'm not a healthcare economist. I'm not sure that those advances have yet um, caught up, um, have yet had a big impact on the, uh, uh, the price of, uh, of hospital care. And so you really have to talk to somebody else about uh, when that um, uh, when that's going to hit. But right now, the per patient cost for a clinical trial is, is, is much higher than it was you know, 20 years ago. So, Niels, uh, as a person who is coming in from, into cancer care from the deep sciences, do you ever see patients other than through samples or through kind of potential targets of opportunity in terms of the, in the lab? 
Is there some benefit of, of, of seeing what the clinical works look, work, workflow looks like? Um, do I personally meet patients? I personally have met many patients, um, patients who are heroic enough to volunteer for clinical trials are often also kind enough to come and meet with the researchers who discovered the drugs, and that's a fantastic experience. But um, my work is, uh, is, is bench work. That's, that's what my team does. My team does not uh, run the clinical trials. Uh, we have to understand what's going on in the clinic, and uh, we meet frequently with the, uh, the people running the clinical trials, and uh, we, um, uh, we get data from those clinical trials, and that, that's an essential sort of feedback loop to help us design better drugs. Is it sometimes for the scientists frustrating? In many ways, I, I remember having done some work for one of your competitors a couple of years ago, and you meet scientists at times that have spent decades, if not their whole career, trying out things only to realize that nothing of that would ever end up in, in, a, in, a, in a drug. Is, is, is that the nature of basic research, that you just have to deal with these failure, failure rates? I think, I think that is frequently true. I've been very lucky. Um, as I said, uh, you know, I've touched 10 drugs that are now FDA approved, and uh, I, you, you mentioned luck at the very beginning. I guess I, I have been very lucky. Um, I think that the lifespan of a drug is a lot shorter now, and that means that um, uh, we, are, we are not loath to cannibalize uh, our own pipeline. If we have an idea for a drug, that is going to be superior to a drug that we already have on the market, we will jump on that and we will put it into the clinic and test it and we will market it even if it's taking away from uh, the, uh, um, the sales of, a, of an existing drug that we have. If we don't eat our own uh, lunch, somebody else will. And right. so for that reason, I, I think there's a, there are a lot more drugs that are, that are being pushed through the, uh, through the pipeline. Now, in the first half of the show, we had uh, Robert von der Heide, the director of Abramson Cancer Center, uh, here in the studio, and we were talking about uh, immunotherapy and, and, and T-cells. Is that a game-changer that also changes the interface between pharma companies and patients? Well, the, uh, the cellular therapy that, uh, the particular type of cellular therapy that you were probably talking about with Dr. von der Heide, um, is very different than the uh, um, the immune modifying drugs that that we're focused on here. Um, those drugs are targeted drugs, and so you pick a particular target on a cancer cell, and then you engineer a uh, um, an immune cell so that it can target that that cancer tissue, um, mediated by that that particular target. What we're doing is designing drugs that don't directly target the cancer cell, but target the immune system. So it's, there's sort of a two-step process. We activate the immune system, and then the patient's own immune system attacks the cancer cell. And for that reason, we can, um, uh, we're working with small molecules and antibodies that can be put on a shelf and formulated and don't have to be custom-made for each patient, whereas the, um, uh, at least the cellular therapies that are on the market right now, they have to be engineered individually for each cancer patient. And so that does change the relationship between the, uh, um, the, the, uh, the drug company and the patient. 
in that you have this sort of this back and forth. The patient cells are being um, uh, provided to the uh, the drug company. The drug company is engineering the cells and then going back to the patient. Um, that's very different from the drugs that we're working with here. In case you're tuning, just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Niels Lonberg, who is the head of oncology discovery at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, Niels, given that uh, you were very modest when you said like you were lucky on the, the, the many hits that you had in your career, back to Pasteur, you were also apparently the prepared mind, but staying in the theme of creativity, what can you do as a leader of a group that is very much kind of in the deep science where, where creativity is absolutely key? What do you do to get your skills that you have been personally successful at into this, into the brains, into this professional skill sets of, of, of the people who report to you? Well, um, again, I'm lucky. I've got a fantastic team, and that's really the strength of, uh, of this drug discovery group. Uh, there's um, a fantastic group of scientists that we've uh, pulled together. You have to give them the uh, um, enough space, enough freedom to really use their their talents and uh, and, and come up with uh, br the brilliant ideas they do come up with and, and pursue them. At the same time, you have to be practical because um, we have to prioritize constantly. We don't have infinite resources. And so you have to review all of the drug discovery processes, you know, on a constant basis and, uh, and assess the risk uh, associated with each particular potential drug and prune the, uh, um, the pipeline so that only those drugs that have the, the best potential opportunity to help patients um, uh, can get the full attention of, of all of your resources. How does this differ from somebody who does, does uh, discovery science in a university? Are, are those folks a little bit more bottom-up and explore more where the science takes them and you give them more business direction? Or how would you characterize the difference between working in a corporate discovery lab versus a university lab? It's very different. There's different, um, different goals and different, um, uh, uh, different reinforcement for, um, uh, for hitting particular goals. In, uh, in a basic research lab, you're really being reinforced for coming up with um, important um, discoveries that can be published and recognized and uh, will lead to uh, you know, new funding opportunities and new, and new discovery opportunities. That, I think, um, what, that, what that does for a drug discovery program within a university environment is that the downstream efforts from the original uh, biological discovery are not resourced as, um, as intensely as they are in a company where the goal is to get a drug into patients and then um, all the way through regulatory processes and onto the market. And so in a... Uh, a uh, drug discovery group like the one I have, there is a pyramid where there's relatively um, fewer resources focused on the early stage and um, very um, uh, large resources focused on, on the back end, whereas the pyramid is inverted for a, uh, um, uh, in a university lab uh, because the, um, 
the the real goal is that initial discovery of the biological phenomena. Has the balance between in-house discovery research and university research or biotech startups, has that changed over the last 10, 15 years? It certainly has. The uh, um, I think that drug companies are more dependent now on the external um, landscape. We have drug discovery partnerships with universities. We have drug discovery partnerships with biotech companies. Um, those those work very well because essentially you're putting the the two inverted pyramids next to each other and you're balancing out the uh, uh, the resources. Um, I think that the early stages of the drug discovery process, understanding the biological pathways, the biological phenomena, that's extremely risky and difficult for a large drug company to resource across multiple therapeutic areas. And so the initial observations are uh, going to come from uh, from small biotech companies and from universities. The downstream processes just could never be um, fully resourced by academia and even by uh, uh, small biotech companies, and that's, I think, where you need a, a large pharmaceutical company. If you look at the economics of bringing a product to market now in the spirit of the downstream resource requirement that you mentioned, give us a scale of the uh, of a typical investment that uh, of products uh, that you have t uh, recently took to market. What type of investments we are looking at the various clinical well, stages? Again, again, this is um, I'm not a healthcare economist, um, and uh, uh, my focus is on on drug discovery, but uh, it is on the order of billions of dollars to get a drug to the uh, um, uh, all the way from discovery to the market. Give me a sense of a scientist working for you. What does a typical work week look like? You mentioned the work at the computer, there's still a lab bench somewhere, I would imagine. There's, there's conferences, reading papers. Is there ever such a thing as a, a typical day in the office? Um, well, there's, there are uh, scientists and scientific managers at different levels. The uh, people working um, uh, at the bench are spending a fair amount of time um, uh, doing uh, laboratory work but they're also spending a fair amount of time at the computer analyzing the data, analyzing what's coming out of the, uh, the, the automated assays that are uh, um, being um, uh, produced by the laboratory uh, manipulations that the individual scientists are doing. They're doing a lot of, uh, of computational analysis and also a fair amount of, of discussion with uh, you know, bringing in uh, external expertise discussion with the toxicology group, discussion with uh, the automation group um, in order to plan the next experiment, in order to understand uh, the results of the last experiment. So it's a very collaborative process. I think probably, um, you know, I, w I would think that a third of the time in anyone's day is spent uh, in, in collaborative discussions. If you think about uh, this work 10, 15 years forward from now, I mean, we've seen a lot of progress and new discoveries. Is the nature of the work you can think, is, is that changing with, again, with more automation for the screening, with more decision support for some of the design discussions that we have earlier on? Or, or will I, when I tour your lab in, in, in 15 years from now, will that look like the lab today? Um, I do, just looking back over the last 20 years, I can't imagine that the uh, 
um, uh, there will be any slowdown in the pace of uh, technological change in the laboratory. Uh, we're increasingly dependent, as I said before, on automation, um, and uh, I think that's only going to that's only going to increase. The automation is incredibly sophisticated. For example, um, in the uh, antibody screening process, we have uh, machines that are not just moving liquid from one tube to another. We have machines that use focused light beams to actually move individual cells. Uh, into uh, different microfluidic chambers, and uh, that has completely changed the way we do cell cloning. Uh, it's it's just a, an incredible revolution that increases the number of uh, projects that we can pursue, and also um, uh, increases the uh, uh, the precision of the of the drugs that are coming out of the other end of the pipeline. If you had uh, double the budget available, uh, or Pick, pick your favorite number, how much more. What, what is the rate-limiting factor? Why is the progress not going faster? Is it, uh, you mentioned earlier on resource allocation decisions. Imagine we would be free for resources. Uh, we would drop billions of dollars more into early-stage research. What would change? Um, we'd pursue uh, riskier programs. We, as I said before, we have to really balance risk at every stage because we do have limited limited resources and that means that some really brilliant ideas that could lead to real uh, real changes uh, in, in healthcare just can't be pursued they're just too risky and so we, we don't do that I think there's um, uh, venture capitalists that are willing to fund small companies you know taking that risk and so some of the higher risk uh, programs are taking place in, in small biotech companies. Um, but it, I think that uh, it would be a tremendous advance to be able to pursue some of these riskier programs. Uh, do you dare to make a prediction how long it will take to find a new? Uh, we'll take, it, it, it's a continuum. <laughs> um, I, think, um, I think resources are always going to be limiting. And uh, um, so that's that's always going to be a, uh, that's always going to be a problem. It's always going to be a big factor in in success for these uh, individual um, drug discovery organizations. Is how do you balance risk versus uh, um, allocation of resources? Speaking of resources, I look at the clock here, and that means my resource of time is running out. So let me thank uh, Niels Lonberg, who is the head of oncology discovery biology at Bristol Myers Scripps. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, Thank you very much. You've been listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School Series Exam. Uh, if you want to have access to some of our older shows, so check us out on website, our website, workoftomorrow.com. Uh, let me thank our sound expert, uh, Danielle Bruno, and my producer, Matt Dads, for their wonderful support today. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tervish. And on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.